Okay, well, so it's Father Jonathan, and I'm here with, well, not literally with, because she's in New York and I'm in Texas, but I'm sitting uh, and talking to Leah Labresco Sargent, and we are uh, chatting about Captain Marvel, about the new film uh, that just came out, the 21st movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is a little bit hard to believe that we're at that point. And uh, so let me ask you first, are, were you familiar at all with the comic book material before you went in? Only a tiny bit, and mostly because I read the first Kamala Khan uh, collection of Ms. Marvel cartoons and then learned a little bit about Captain Marvel uh, through that. Okay. So, but none of the Captain Marvel books themselves? Nope. Okay, so this is this is interesting. Okay, good. So you're sort of... A blank slate in that way like not entirely because you've seen a lot of the MCU and you've, you've seen other stuff but you didn't come into it with like expectations in that right. same way see and I did like I, I love this character and and the comics and I'm sort of like in awe of the fact that people actually know the name Captain Marvel now it's like really weird to me because it's been so obscure for so long so let me ask you then so what was what was your first impressions of the film? Well, I think overall, I enjoyed it. Um, I agree with folks who think it's kind of in the middle tier of Marvel movies. Um, mm -hmm. And I think mostly that's because it feels like the the movie just wound up pitched a little younger, or rather a little simpler, uh, since kids are actually more up for nuance than people assume, um, than it would have been ideally. Hmm. Okay, um, so, and we're going to, by the way, folks, um, we're going to try to avoid spoilers, but we're not going to promise to avoid spoilers. Oh, yeah, I didn't assume I was promising to avoid spoilers. There's too much here, so maybe maybe what we'll do is if we're going to really say a spoiler, we'll, we'll, I'll give, we'll a give fair warning. warning. So we'll start out a little more general. So, but can you say what you mean by that? Like, what, what makes it simpler than sure. uh, the other films? So, not necessarily than all the other films, than what kind of it felt like they'd set up in the movie itself. And I'll start vague, and then I'm going to give a warning. Okay. Um, you know, the, the movie places uh, Captain Marvel as a Kree soldier in the war against the Skrulls, you know, and gradually kind of implies to us or reveals to us that this war is a little more complicated than we or Carol at first realized. And now I'm going to be a little more specific, so you can scrub ahead or pause, go see the movie, and come back. <laughs> You know, the movie kind of takes us from a very simplistic Cree good scrolls bad to a more complex, uh, but actually ultimately pretty simplistic scrolls good Cree bad. And I was a little frustrated by this um, because it, it seemed genuinely interesting to ally with people who were mixed. Um, but there's just kind of a throwaway line that, of course, the scrolls also have blood on their hands. But from the second we, we shift to being on their side, the, the real menace or frighteningness of the scrolls is treated as a joke. Um, there's no lasting consequences to a scroll impersonating Maria to her child, uh, which is terrifying. And from that point on, the three are pretty much simply malevolent. And we never really even see an illustration of what we're told is one of the Cree virtues of self-sacrifice. You know, it's interesting because people talk about the sort of retcon that happens with her um, origin story. I was not bothered by that so much. She's a character with a sort of weird origin that develops over time. She really has three or four origins in her history. And so kind of melting them all together in a way that's going to make sense to a movie-going audience uh, requires a little bit of 
of alchemy to achieve. But I thought that the, the kind of the strangest move in some ways was to make the scrolls seem, from a comic book perspective, was to make the scrolls seem like completely innocent creatures. I, I get why they make that shift in the film as a narrative device, but as a like ongoing thing, I mean, the scrolls do lots of terrible things. <laughs> we see them do yeah. at least one terrible thing um, here, and you know we see uh, the scrolls by infiltrating you know direct shield agents uh, to take out a comrade, right? Like those those are actually serious things. It doesn't feel like the scrolls, even if they themselves are refugees, are treating the personhood of the people they're hiding among very seriously. Mm -hmm. the, the movie, I think, doesn't ultimately ask us to take that uh, as a weighty matter. Um, you know, once they're once we're on the same side, the scrolls are pretty comic and charming. Yes. And I, I think Ben Mendelsohn is great in the role, to be clear. Yes. Do you feel like, though, do you feel like that was a, there was an attempt with that plot twist to make some kind of a statement with it? Or was it just sort of like an easy way to make the movie more interesting? I mean, I think, I think the statement um, isn't a very pointed one, which is fine. Um, you know, movies don't work very well as an exact analog for, um, you know, particular political conflicts. Um, I think, you know, the main statement is when you're in a position where you point a gun at someone, make sure you're right to be doing that, right? Like, you know, we have Captain Marvel as a soldier who hasn't done that much thinking about the nature of the war she's involved in. You know, and I think that's a good message for anyone with power over someone else. Yeah. Okay. So I, I would say, like, as a whole, I I would probably agree with you that this is kind of kind of middle tier for for the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe, maybe upper middle tier. You know, it's really just laying the tracks for stuff that they will probably do in the future. And I think anytime that's what you're doing, it almost has a prequel feel to it, even though it's not a prequel. Okay, we're going to tell you who this character is so that we can use her in interesting ways in, in other films, which doesn't stop it from being entertaining, but it does limit the amount of ground that you can cover. As a fan of the character, I... I did enjoy it on that level in a different sort of way. Like I bounced in my seat a little bit when Kelly Sue DeConnick showed up on the screen for like two seconds that nobody else would have noticed unless they like. Where, where was she? So in the, in the scene where Carol is running after the uh, scrolls, she's just gotten to earth and she's running after them, uh, eventually tracks the one down into the train and, and mm -hmm. stuff goes from there. Um, she is running by various people, and one of the people that goes by her is Kelly Sue DeConnick. And it's like nice. two seconds. Like, you would, you, if you didn't know, you would miss it. But, like, I, I'm like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> That's really fun. So, um, yeah, so that was like a nice Easter egg. Um, and there are other things like that, too, that in some ways I think don't even work as well in the movie. Like, you know, the, the cat who. Um, <laughs> becomes this pivotal, I don't know what you would call it, a story device uh, mm -hmm. character, sort of. And I've, I've been listening to, uh, ever since I saw the film, I've been listening to some other folks' review, and you can tell 
who has read the comics and who hasn't because some people are like i don't understand why they put this cutesy cat in the film it's just this like weird like animal comedic thing why would they do that not realizing that it's totally a throwback to something that kelly sue DeConnick wrote <laughs> i enjoyed the cat so, without any further context yeah the cat was yeah. simply enjoyable alexi was convinced going in just from the prominence of people talking about the cat he's like the scrolls are going to impersonate the cat and then take out Nick Fury's eye as a scroll cat. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I won't specify whether or not that turned out to be true. So that I'll leave as a question for <laughs> for people who are in it. It's just like that was Alexi was very sure going in. We were going to see a scroll yeah. cat. I think at this um, point we've pretty much punched the the hole in the spoiler ceiling. We can probably oh, say great. whatever That's we awesome. want. <laughs> So I, th- I think another thing that was nice about the origin story nature of this um, of this movie, I was about to say this episode, because that's what it feels like at this point in the MCU, mm-hmm. is that it really gives us one of the things that I like best about superhero origin stories, which is as people discover the scope of their powers, you know, their confusion or delight with them, Spider-Man, like, you know, breaking parts of his bathroom as he adjusts to his power is great. And captain marvel's reaction near the end of the movie as she kind of experiences the full scope of what her power is having you know understood them as more limited than they were uh, is delightful there's a moment where she smashes the ship like not with her fists like just straight chest first flying through it because she can in this kind of moment of ebullient destruction uh, that i really like yeah and you have to assume that the, by the time we see her again in endgame we're going to see a more mature Captain Marvel who's has more of a grasp of her powers. They aren't such a surprise to her. And seeing this like really joyful moment of discovering them was delightful. Yeah, well, uh, presumably, because she's had, uh, at least in the timeline they've created for her, she's had 20-some years now to get used to her powers right. when we see her in Avengers. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Like there is, there is something wonderful about that sort of discovery. Um, I am a little bit... I have some reservations about the amnesia storyline that they give her because I think that that limits her character development in in an unfortunate way um, because two-thirds of the movie, Carol is not Carol. She's trying to figure out who she is, but she doesn't know. And so, like, I feel like that kind of hems her in um, in a way that, like, you know, Peter Parker doesn't have to do that because he's he's figuring out how to have powers, but he's he's still Peter Parker, right? Like he's not like a whole different person, um, and she's trying to just figure out who she is at all with the help of Annette Benning. <laughs> Annette Benning, great in both roles she plays here. Yeah. I I only partially agree with you. I think there are some moments where it kind of mutes what what might otherwise be a more emotional moment because it's not emotional for uh, an amni for an amnesiac you know i wish a little bit they'd given her a slightly stronger emotional connection to the cree because i think where i agree with you is she doesn't feel that connected to anyone Mm -hmm. um but the amnesia also gave me one of my favorite moments in the film and you know what i think was kind of the best moments of this as a film adaptation when these scrolls are probing her memory and, you know, rolling things back, redoing them, um, recutting the memory to try and, like, get the one piece of information they need. That was one of my favorite visual sequences in the film mm-hmm. um, because it had a, a sense of horror and a sense of humor at the same time. 
and reminded me of some of my favorite parts of Doctor Strange, just where, you know, instead of just, oh, well, we have CGI and we have effects, so we can definitely have explosions later, there's a real playfulness and inventiveness in what film could show, which I also thought showed up with the um, Annette Benning intelligence. Um, and those two sequences were so visually inventive and fun that I just wish they'd leaned into that a little more elsewhere in the film. Uh, speaking of uh, dramatic uh, CGI effects, what did you think of the de-aged Samuel L. Jackson? I was ultimately okay with it. Um, I think people should really just recast when they want people to play younger selves, and we'll believe it because they're actors, you know. Um, <laughs> there, there was a. It was. It was not as distracting as I worried it would be. Um, I thought he did well, but I think a young actor would also have done well. Um, and it probably would have been less expensive. He had a very childlike appearance, which I can't tell is the result of the de-aging or a deliberate choice they made about the de-aging. Um, Alexi said afterwards that this Sam Jackson looked younger than he does in Pulp Fiction, which is his first major screen role. So we get a, a Sam Jackson who has never been on film. Yeah, um, he looked, actually, he looked a little bit like he did in The Long Kiss Goodnight if you've ever seen that, which is from... I have not. It's from around that same period. It's it's uh, probably... Actually, it's probably from 1995, which is about, I guess, about when this film was um, <laughs> set. Boy, did they uh, uh, did they enjoy letting us know that this movie was set in the 90s. That was very, like... Uh, and, you know, and I was a teenager in the 90s, so, like, you know, I enjoyed some of that stuff. Um, but it was, like... Uh, we're, we're not going to let any moment pass us by that we can't make a cultural reference <laughs> that will tell you Well, I'll tell you, you my, exactly. my favorite 90s cultural reference in the movie. Um, did you clock the visual reference to Buffy the Vampire Slayer? No, I didn't. <laughs> okay, so this is, this is my favorite thing. I wish a little bit they'd kept it out of the trailer because I think it would have had a little more oomph for me if I discovered it in the movie theater rather than anticipated it. But the, the marvelous sequence so to speak, of Carol falling down again and again and again and then standing up mm -hmm. uh, reminded me very strongly of in the series finale of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Chosen. Um, there's a moment where Buffy is discussing with all the potential slayers who could be the slayer but don't have her powers unless you know they're chosen to be the single slayer, that they have a plan to make every potential slayer a real fully powered slayer. And as she's narrating this, you know, from now on, every girl in the world who might be a slayer will be a slayer. You know, it pans over all these girls who have never been shown um, on the season, on the series before. We've, we've never met them. Met you know, a girl by her locker, you know, suddenly feeling this rush of power into her. Um, a girl who, like, stands up and, like, catches the fist that was headed for her. And the, one of the last ones is a girl who's at Little League and just, like, puts her head down for a second when she stands up again. You, know, you can see she's going to hit the heck out of that ball. And we see one of the times Carol gets back up is a little league shot that strongly reminded me of that Buffy sequence, which ends over that little league girl with, make your choice. Are you ready to be strong? You know, mm -hmm. And I think that was also the most effective part of you know, what does it mean to have a female-led hero here. For one thing, it's in continuity and a dialogue with other female heroes. And for another, it reminded me favorably of Jessica Jones, where they told a more specific story about what kind of threats women face, where this is ultimately a story about gaslighting and being lied to about what your strengths are by someone who wants to control them.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, hey, we managed to go like 16 minutes before we even got to the uh, female hero stuff. So I think we're probably the first podcast about this film that <laughs> that has managed to do that. But uh, that is one of the questions I was going to ask you is what did you think about the way that they sort of um, work with the idea of her as a not just as a hero, but as a female hero and how they portray that? pretty well you know I think you know it's a tiny bit like with other things I liked about the movies it feels like I want them to go one notch more sophisticated um than they did just like I'd like the Kree scroll war to be one notch more sophisticated but you know this is one of the elements where it's just most viscerally satisfying um Mm -hmm. you know the the falling and getting up made me cheer when I saw the trailer even before I understood kind of the scope of what it was doing in the movie and you know the the, the way that her mentor is ultimately holding her back um, is, you know, a question people have to ask in real life, you know, not always as a deliberate thing and not always as part of a complicated cosmic war. But, you know, is this person who's ostensibly helping me telling me the truth about who I am? Um, or are they kind of deliberately or accidentally continuing to repeat kind of the lies that have held me back? And I think that's a great storytelling choice, just like, you know, the use of Kilgrave's powers was fantastic in Jessica Jones. Um, and it made it a really satisfying movie, especially for Carol's final confrontation with her mentor. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of sort of like chatter and commentary about this movie as a feminist project or, the, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And <clears throat> some people feeling like it, it uh, went over the top in that direction. Some people feeling like it didn't go nearly far enough to make some sort of uh, feminist statement. I kind of felt like it was, it was, first of all, like it, there was too much pressure loaded onto this for that. You know what I mean? Like it's, I mean, okay. So it's the first female led movie in the MCU, which is a big deal. Cause we've had 20 others, but she's not the first female superhero we've seen at all. Um, and we don't know her in the same, you know, like when Wonder Woman came out, um, which is obviously not the MCU, but like we know Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman has a cultural significance that Captain Marvel doesn't. So they had to introduce, they had to do a lot of work with Captain Marvel so that we get who she is. Um, and um, I, I, I don't think you can talk about this character and avoid the reality of who she is as a woman, right? Like the fact that she was in the Air Force and, you know, like all of these sorts of things like are a part of a part of her reality. You point that out well, that like the kind of story that's being told there is a story that I think is, is going to be um, familiar to a lot of women. Is it oversimplified in places? Probably, but that's I think that's a product of the whole film being oversimplified. Yes. You know, I was pretty I was pretty happy with how they handled this storyline and kind of this element of the movie, um, mm-hmm. you know, relative to the war itself, etc. Yeah. I did feel like it was a little too on the nose when uh, you know, her great realization battle scene, they start playing I'm just a girl by no doubt in the background. <laughs> No, no, it's the most 90s thing. It just, like, is go all the most in 90s. on the, yeah. like, two-on-the-nose music stuff. I'm all for it. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, she falls through a blockbuster video. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's great. Like, um, no no regrets there for me. Like, I think people, I'm, like, in favor of uh, 
properly considered corniness. Yes, yes. May very well be my favorite Stan Lee cameo. Oh, uh, yeah, that was lovely. You know, because um, you really like, it's like, oh, oh, yes, okay. This is, now this is the 90s. <laughs> one, of the, one of the things I did find a little disappointing about this movie, um, I was, it was cool to see Ronan turn up, um, you know, and I thought they did a good job making the cameo interesting for fans who are connected for the larger MCU without really breaking what I think is true about this movie, which is it stands well on its own. You, know, you don't have to already care about Nick Fury to care about him in this movie, and it can be an entry point to the MCU for anyone who wants it to be. But... What we know about Ronan in Guardians of the Galaxy is that he's a Cree extremist um, who's going further than the rest of the Cree are to wipe people out. And in this movie, he doesn't seem that different from the Cree overall. We don't really get a sense of what's moving him in that direction. And what I wanted was more of a sense that, you know, some of the Cree aren't on board with what's happening to the scrolls or aren't aware of it. You know, maybe a moment of pause, you know, maybe uh, Captain Marvel's mentor is both sabotaging her all the time and not in favor of a just war, but some moment where someone holds back and that's part of what pushes Ronin past what's his current role into where we'll see him in Guardians of the Galaxy. You know, because it just doesn't feel like he's at odds with the Kree at all. Um, they all seem kind of as malevolent and destructive as he ultimately becomes. And I'm, I want more intra-Kree politics of how do we justly pursue this war and, you know, what really gives Ronan his sense that the Kree have pulled back from it. Yeah. So, okay. So that's interesting because one of the things I was confused about is there is a scene where Jude Law, whose character name escapes me at the moment, let's just call him the young Pope. That works. Uh, Jan Rog. <laughs> ah, but there you sure, go. Sure, young Pope. Um, so <laughs> um, he's like, uh, he's talking to Ronan over some sort of subspace channel or something uh, and and lies to him about what's going on with Carol and where she is. Um, and later he'll reverse that. Later he'll actually be the one to sort of betray her in, in this way and call him in. But I didn't understand why earlier on he misdirected him. Yeah, and this is where I think the movie kind of sets things up and doesn't quite deliver on them. Like, it sounds like there is a real tension between kind of these small precision strike forces that Jan Rog leads and what the accusers, which we learn is kind of a military rank rather than particular to Ronin, do, which is just carpet bombing. Mm -hmm. um, and I would have liked them to lean a little into that tension and that sense of, you know, how the Kree choose to carry out this war. And, you know, what Jan Rog thinks about his role in it and what uh, Carol thinks about her role in it a little bit more nuanced than what I did was wrong and now this new thing is right. Especially because I don't really believe that as Captain Marvel flies off that ultimately the solution to the Kree-Skrull war is going to be that she punches everyone into peace, right? Um, <laughs> I, thought, I thought the movie is setting us up for kind of an interesting question of what kind of eucatastrophe is necessary for there to be re uh, reconciliation. You know, and I think most of that's going to happen off screen, but I'd like a little more setup to figure out it's not just, I need to go threaten the Kree enough so that they stop threatening the Skrulls. Okay. I'm just super into stories about how people try and like stop a war going on all around them. Um, and I'd yeah. recommend the City of Brass, Kingdom of Copper uh, fantasy series on that front, which I've just been reading myself. Well, I was just going to say this, this story is rife for fan fiction. 
uh, about what happens internally in the Cree world. And Leah, I think you should totally write some sort of, <laughs> I would read that fan fiction. Yeah, you know, it'll be just an intense, like, diplomatic internal politics fan fiction. All yes. meetings, all the time. Very Absolutely. little touching. Absolutely. Um, it'll be wonderful. Um, I'm also, I would also like somebody to explain to me why the Cree are sometimes blue and sometimes not. Um, yeah, I asked Alexi that... this, and he just said he thinks there's, like, natural variation, and maybe some of the Cree who have more human-looking skins are the ones who wind up going undercover as uh, Marvell does, rather than that she puts on makeup every day to hide her Cree face. But who knows? I also was confused about this. Yeah, indeed. Um, any any last uh, thoughts about this before we uh, sign off? We've managed. I mean, to... I would de- I would definitely recommend it. I just I think I always want folks working in kind of large franchises to to feel more empowered to lean into the weirdness of the particular property they're working with. And I just wish Captain Marvel, I, I think it's good. I wish it had gone like 10% more in the direction it was already going. Yeah. Um, we've managed to do this whole thing without any sort of theological connection and that that's fine. I don't know that there needs to be one. Um, well, I, I think I was pointing towards one in terms of where I wanted this movie to go, right? The that, reconciliation. Like, ultimately reconciliation yeah. is going to involve something more than punching. Um, and I think that that's part of mm-hmm. the the real like nuance of you know people being both good and bad and struggling between them or doing uh, evil in what feels like a righteous cause feels like it's the central puzzle of the movie but isn't quite given space enough for us to talk about what stance it takes on it. Hmm. What the Cree need is Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> Although we get to the theological questions of yes. whether Christ, you know, on earth died for everyone, or we go for a more space trilogy thing where there are oh redemptions my. of individual worlds. Um, and this is frankly beyond my competency as a theologian. Yeah, that's probably beyond the competency of this particular podcast as well, to sort <laughs> all of those questions out. But I would say um, Captain Marvel, worth seeing, good film. I think Brie Larson uh, does a great job portraying this character. Um, and uh, it has some flaws to it, but um, but I, I would still say it's worth seeing, and I think that they've set this character up to do really cool things in the future, um, and I would also say, more strongly than that, uh, go out and read Kelly Sue DeConnick's run of Captain Marvel. Um, she does actually two different runs uh, with this character because it's fantastic and it's where some of this stuff is drawn from but goes goes to a bit of a deeper place um and uh, so if you if you haven't seen the film go read those books if you have seen the film go read those books um if you have read the books go reread go read them again you know exactly (laughs) um and uh we'll we'll see where this goes from here all right leah thank you for chatting with me about this Thanks for having me on. Talking about comics, God and comics, God and comics. If you love God and you love.